You are listening to an Elam Christian Center podcast. We hope that you are inspired, encouraged, and empowered by the message you are about to hear. Fantastic. Good morning, church. How are we doing? Did I cut off the video? Was there more? Did I ruthlessly interrupt Dean Openshaw? No one tell him, okay? How are you doing this morning? It's so good to be up here with all of you. And I just um, wanted to say, especially Jaden, what a great job you're doing while your pastors are away. You can clap him. He's doing an outstanding job. What a great guy you are. And it's such a privilege to be here, actually, especially with Pastor Mike and Amy away because, you know, you really trust someone if you entrust your platform to them while you're gone. And so I feel the weight of that responsibility and definitely pray for your pastors. But it's so good to be up here. And I have to tell you, I love coming to this campus because every time I come, the moment I walk in, it feels like family. And I want to commend you because you guys do family very, very well. And so uh, thank you for treating everyone who walks in as family. You can give yourselves a round of applause this morning. How about it? You always clap for other people, but you never get to clap for yourselves. Clap for yourselves. I like that. But um, my name's Hayley, and uh, I'm the principal of our Elam Leadership College. uh, And there there are a lot of amazing interns at this church as well. Come on, Benji Cochran. I see you. You're a good man, and the rest of you are amazing too. So it's good to be with you this morning. We're starting a new series called Chasing Shadows. And the premise of this series is that we're going to be looking at pictures and types and shadows of Jesus in the Old Testament. And are the morning to kick you off, I'm going to be looking at Jesus in the book of Job, and I need you to know this morning that I hope you bought your seatbelts, because when I prepped this sermon, I wrote way too many words, and I had to cut down, cut down, cut down. I said in the initial draft to Parky, and Parky was like, Hayley, you might want to refine this a little bit. She said it in a polite way. Thank you, Parky. But uh, so get ready, because I'm going to go to a lot of Bible this morning. Is that okay? Good. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your presence that's here in this place. And we just take a moment to truly set our eyes upon you and say, we want you, we want your word. We believe, Lord, that your word has the final say, that it is the authority. And so we take a moment to place ourselves beneath the authority of your word. And we say, in Jesus' name, would you change us? Would you shape us? Would you conform us to the image of your son? Would you encourage us this morning to the glory of your name? Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. When I was uh, younger, I played a lot of hockey, and I was blessed to play uh, Auckland under-representative sort of grade. And I remember I made it into an Auckland development, under-15 development team, which is basically the equivalent of like an Auckland B team, but they were too politically correct to say that we were the B team, so they called us the development team. Uh, But we were quite a good development team. There was a couple of players in that team who went on to be black sticks, uh, and so we were reasonably good as a development team. So instead of going to the B tournament, they sent us to the A tournament, and uh, we did well. We actually did better than the Auckland A team, uh, which I don't think went down very well, and we went all the way to the semi-final where we played Waikato, and we were playing them in the semi-final. It was nil all, and it was about to finish late in the second half when all of a sudden they had a penalty corner, and I distinctly remember running back as this penalty corner took place, and I saw a girl from their team stop the ball with her foot and then push it into the goal. Now, if you know hockey, you know it's not supposed to hit the foot. That is not a thing that
it should happen. And so I'm like, yep, it's going to be a foul. It's gonna, they're going to give us a free hit. And so I run and get the ball to take the free hit. When I see, I'm sorry, I've worked up already. When I see, <laughs> this emotion is genuine. When I, I haven't outworked this. I haven't processed this apparently. When I see the umpire is signaling goal. And I'm like, livid. I'm screaming. I'm reasonably good at keeping my competitiveness like in check until something unjust happens. And that was unjust. And so I'm like this tiny 13-year-old screaming at the umpire. It hit her foot. It hit her foot. This is really cathartic for me this morning. Wow, it's good for me. And so they... The umpires kind of like decide that they're going to have a conference. And so the umpires run together. They're having a meeting in the middle of the field. And I think to myself, surely, surely they're going to signal that it's a no goal because it clearly hit this girl's foot. But instead, they signal that it's a goal. We lose 1-0. We do not progress to the final. And apparently, I'm still hurt about it to this day. Who knew? Not me until I started sharing it. Because it matters what you see. Like for my little Auckland team, it mattered what the umpires saw. For us, it was the difference between winning or losing, for progressing to the final or not. It matters what you see. How many people know in life it matters what you see? More than that, it matters how you see it. What you see is vision. How you see it, how you interpret it is perspective. It doesn't just matter what you see. It matters how you see it. It matters how you perceive it. It matters how you interpret it. Did you know psychologists say that literally the difference between a positive and a negative mindset is a switch in three things? A switch in your physicality, did you know that if you, they've done blood tests, if you stand like a superhero for five minutes, literally the chemistry in your blood changes so that you have more positive, whatever it is, hormones or enzymes or someone medical to say a word. I like the Bible, you know. Endorphins. Thank you in the front row. What's your name? Judy. You're helpful, Judy. Someone give her a crunchy. Yeah, you can clap for Judy. It's so good. Endorphins, a change in physicality, a change in focus, what you're focusing on, and a change in how you interpret your story. That's why worship is so powerful. It's a change in physicality. We stand up straight. We lift our hands. It's a change in focus. We take our eyes off our circumstance, put them on God, and it's a change in the way you interpret your story. I'm not beneath. I'm above. I'm a child of God. That's why that is so powerful. It's a switch in perception. The thing that you need to know is that when you are going through hard times and struggles, how many people know it matters how you see? It matters how you perceive the struggle. It matters how you perceive the hard times. In fact, your perception can be the difference between a season eroding your faith and refining your faith. Your perception can be the difference between you getting stuck in the valley of the shadow of death or you walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And to prove it to you, I'm going to take you to the book of Job. Now, Job is a very unique book in the Bible. Job is set in a place called Uz, which is fun to say. You probably didn't need that detail, but I wanted to say Uz. Its main character is obviously Job, who it's named about after. And you need to understand that Job is not even an Israelite. 
Job is a Gentile, and the other characters in his story are also Gentile people, but they are said to be representations of the the nations of the ancient Near East at the time. There is strong evidence that this is one of the oldest stories that were ever enacted in the Bible. That's why if you read a chronological Bible reading plan, they will place the book of Job somewhere around Genesis 10 or 11, because that's when they believe that the action of the story of Job is set. And what Job is in terms of structure is it is a prologue, a prologue which sets the scene, that's in prose, it's in narrative, it's in storytelling form, and then a long discourse in the middle, which is essentially a conversation within Job and his friends. And it's a long bit of text, it's around 30 or 40 chapters, and then it finishes again with an epilogue that is in prose. What Job is, is a story of innocent suffering. And the long discourse in the middle between Job and his friends is essentially a discussion of why Job is suffering so terribly. Why is Job in so much pain and tragedy? They are seeking to understand the why of suffering. And that's why this book is so incredibly emotionally resonant for us today. Isn't it encouraging to know that one of the first stories ever enacted debates a question that we still debate today? Why is there evil and suffering in the world? That's what makes it so relevant. And what I want you to see is that in both Job and in the life of his friends, get this, limited perspective produces accusation. That's what I want you to see. In both the discourse of Job, the conversation of Job and Job's friends, limited perspective produces accusation. Let me break down what that means as we look at the arguments of the two friends. Firstly, Job's friends. A synthesis or a summary of the argument that they put forward, and literally I'm paraphrasing like, Tens and twenties worth of chapters, okay? So bear with me, but I'm definitely summarizing. But the summary of the argument would go something like this. God is just. God runs the world according to divine justice. And their perception of divine justice is this, that the wicked will suffer and the righteous will prosper. That's what they perceived as divine justice. God is just. God runs the world according to divine justice. Job is suffering, therefore Job must be a sinner. Note that with their limited perspective, their limited understanding, their limited information, they produce an accusation that Job is a sinner. In fact, they go so far that at the end of the discourse, they are literally suggesting to Job sins that he could have committed. This is an example, Job 4 verse 7 to 8. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Were the upright, where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. They perceive Job's situation And they conclude that if he is suffering, he must have done something to earn it. Now, before we start throwing stones at Job's friends, can we be introspective for a second? As we have walked through suffering with someone else, 
Have we ever stood in the place of Job's friends and allowed our limited perspective to produce accusation? Because we might not have done it in these words, but here are some words that we might have done it in. Maybe God is doing this to try to teach you a lesson. Maybe if you had done this, it wouldn't have happened. Maybe if you stopped doing this, you could get out of this season quicker. Friend, we soften the language, but the sentiment remains the same. You have done something to earn the terror that has befallen you. Friend, limited perspective produces accusation. I need you to know that when God turns up on the scene, God deeply rebukes Job's friends for their response. He says this, Job 42 verse 7, After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. We got convicting this morning, but listen, we're just following the text, so it's okay. (laughs) Takeaway point, if you are supporting someone who is walking through a season of loss, grief, tragedy, don't suggest sin where God has proclaimed innocence. Don't be the person who is suggesting sin where God has spoken innocence. Be slow to offer accusation. Be quick to offer compassion. That's the response of Job's friends. But I want you to see now the response of Job because he falls into a similar pattern, but it looks different. See, in Job's mind, he's saying, I'm innocent. I'm blameless. I've done nothing to earn the terror that has befallen me. And so the conclusion that he makes is also accusatory in nature. He says, if I'm blameless and I'm innocent, that must mean that God doesn't run the world in accordance with divine justice, or it must mean that God is unjust. And friend, if you want something in Scripture that is deeply relevant, here it is. Because which one of us, having walked through hard times, haven't at times accused God's character in the midst of it? That is what Job's doing. In fact, he says this in Job 19, and I'm going to read the last verses only. He says, know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. And the thing you need to understand is that Job is on an emotional roller coaster in this passage. He thought God was just, but he can't reconcile God's justice with the presence of suffering in his life. And so at times, he accuses God of various things, but also at other times, he makes grand declarations of God's goodness and love towards him. In fact, in the same chapter as the verse that I read out earlier, Job also says this, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Many a worship song has borrowed that lyric. Why didn't they use the ones verses earlier is my question. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. We quote that one far more than the first one. And yet they appear in the same chapter. And I find this oscillation for Job, this rocking between faith and accusation, deeply relatable. Because how many of us walking through trial and tragedy oscillate between, God, do you even love me? God, are you here for me? God, can you hear me? 
God, why won't you act on my behalf? And then at other times, God, your promise still stands. God, I know you're fighting for me. God, I'm clinging to your words. I find this oscillation of Job deeply relatable. And here is the encouraging thing. In the midst of all this, God never rebukes Job for the things that he said. Like Job has accused God of some things that are so bad that he gets scared at times. And yet God never rebukes Job for his struggle. In fact, he deeply approves of the fact that Job would bring his struggle before the person of God. Friend, there is a lesson for us here today. Have you ever noticed that the presence of lament, the presence of outpoured grief, the presence of a struggle with hope does not mean, hear me, the absence of faith. In fact, God deeply approves of the fact that Job is willing to voice his emotion. He's willing to voice his struggle. He's willing to process his suffering with God. And this is crucially important for the way you and I process things. Can I say with deep love for the church that we need to become better with the presence of lament. Because a lament is not often the voice of doubt. It is the voice of protest against the fact that evil is evil and suffering is bad and will one day be expelled from the earth when Christ comes again in power. We do not need to reconcile ourselves to the presence of evil because evil will not be present in the new world. Can I hear an amen? We struggle against it. We protest against it. We reject it. Why? Because it's not coming with us when kingdom comes again, right? And so in the church, we need to be a bit better with protesting lament. Your friends can come into church and complain and protest and still praise and worship and faith and integrity. Did you know that in the book of Psalms, get this, there is actually more Psalms of lament than the are of praise and thanksgiving. And Psalms was the song book of Israel, right? Imagine coming into church. Sarah Gomez on keys. Didn't work. <laughs> Sarah Gomez on keys. She's like, come on church, let's praise and worship together. God, why are you so far from me? Come on, lift your hands and sing. God, why have you turned your face? But this is Israel, right? Man, we need to get a bit more comfortable with the presence of lament, with protest, with grief in the church, because that is actually the God-prescribed way to protest your pain and suffering. This is why you can take the masks off when you come to church, because lament in terms of Psalms is as valid form of worship than praise and thanksgiving is. Note that limited perspective always results in accusation. So it's unsurprising that when God comes at the end of the book to talk to Job directly, what he challenges is Job's perspective. God doesn't change what Job sees. He changes how he sees it. He widens Job's perspective. And what God does essentially is he takes Job on what I would call a tour of the universe. 
He points out all the cosmic details of the world that God oversees. And if you have a chance, go home today and read Job 38 because it's an amazing chapter. This is God to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted with joy? God is widening Job's perspective. You see, if Job and his, his friend's limited perspective produced accusation, as God widens Job's perspective, he gives an invitation to trust. Let me put it like this. Job has been asking God to show him the reason for his suffering. God is giving Job the reason to trust him through his suffering. See, the incredibly frustrating thing about the book of Job is after chapter after chapter, which discusses the why of suffering, God never gives an answer. God never answers the question. Instead, God says to Job, look up, look around, look at creation, look at the millions of reasons that I have given you to trust me through it, even though you don't know the reason for it. See, God is showing Job and his friends the deeper assumption that is present in their claims to know what the universe should look like if it's run by justice. He's like, do you know what I know? Do you measure the tides? Do you ensure that all living creatures are provided for? Did you set the earth on its foundations? Did you speak it into being? No, you can't claim to have the knowledge of God. Then how can you know how to run the world according to justice? In fact, if we would put it in 2021 language, God says, sit down. He reminds them that they are not God, that they are human beings with limited perspective. He never gives the reason why. He gives the reason why we should trust that despite our circumstance, he is still the God of good. Come on, somebody. He is still the God of wisdom. He is still the God of justice. And I can't see it with my limited perspective, but I can believe through it that my God is good and still working everything to his good and his glory. If the um, band would like to join me, let me finish with this. He might not give us a reason for it, but he gives us the reason to trust him through it. Why? Because we can see Jesus in it. And this is where I want you to see Jesus in Job. So you might not have noticed, but the beginning of the book of Job is in many ways set up to minister, uh, mirror, excuse me, the opening two chapters of the book of Genesis. Think about it. In the opening scene of Job, there is an accuser in the throne room, just like there is a snake in the garden. Job is set with a test. Satan wants to test Job because he thinks he will curse God. Likewise, Adam is set a test, whether or not he will eat the apple, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Both of them, Adam and Job, are described as blameless and upright. 
And finally, and you can laugh at this one when I say it, both of them have wives who try to tempt them into the sin. (laughs) Eve gives Adam the apple, and Job's wife tells him to curse God and die. Within the text, actually, and I haven't got time to get into it, there are numerous language, uh, linguistic texts and hyperlinks, we call them, that are meant to remind the reader of what's happening in Genesis 1 and 2. And all of that shows us that what Job is being presented as is another Adam figure. But Job 1 and 2 is at pains to tell us that in all of this, Job doesn't sin. In other words, Job is presented as an Adam who passes the test and yet suffers anyway. At the end of the text, Job's friends, who remember I said are meant to be representatives of the Eastern nations, are rebuked by God. Remember? He says that he is angry at them. And this is what he tells them to do. He says, go to Job, the innocent sufferer, and Job will make intercession for you so that you will receive mercy. Job, the innocent sufferer, intercedes for them so that the nations may receive mercy. I pray you see what's happening here, friends. It's Jesus and Job. The entire gospel narrative spelt out in one of the first biblical stories that was ever enacted. It is Jesus in Job. See, the fascinating thing about the text is that Job is still suffering when the friends come and ask for prayer. He's still on the ash heap. When these people come to him who have betrayed him, accused him, these people who he is deeply disillusioned for with, and he prays for them nonetheless. And the Bible records that as Job is praying, they receive mercy and Job's fortunes are restored. Jesus in Job. And I pray today that you can see Jesus in the book of Job because I want you to be able to see Jesus at the point of your suffering. See, the reality is this. If you see Jesus, you see hope. You see the innocent sufferer who was not a bystander to your pain, but joined you in it. Come on, somebody. Who was not a bystander to your brokenness, but joined you in it. Who was not a bystander towards your suffering, but joined you in it, but didn't just join you in it. Because he didn't die in his brokenness and stay there. How many people know that he was raised to new life? Jesus is the hope that there is purpose in pain. Jesus is the hope that brokenness will one day be swallowed up by wholeness. Death will one day be swallowed up by life. Sickness will one day be swallowed up by healing. If I can see Jesus, come on somebody, I can see hope. And so I pray today that you see Jesus in your suffering the same way that you and I can see Jesus in Job because he is the innocent sufferer 
who died for our sins, for the healing of the nations. Beautiful. With every eye closed and every head bowed. If you're here today and you have never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, in a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to. Because his story was written so that we would be bound up within it. Today, if you feel trapped in your pain, trapped in your brokenness, trapped in your suffering, you need to know that there is hope for you. And hope is walking towards you today in the person of Jesus. Because you were created for life. You were created for peace. You were created for purpose. You were created for eternity. You might not have that now. Why? Well, the Bible talks about this thing called sin. Sin separates us from God, but that's why Jesus came. He came to join you in your pain and brokenness so that if you put your faith in Him, you could be raised to new life. And that opportunity is what is presented to you today. If you confess your sins and make Him your Lord, then today that new life is available to you. And so if you want to do that, I'm going to count to three. And at the end of that three count, I ask that you put up your hand. One, two, three. If that's you, raise your hand. You're saying, today I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Thank you. God bless you. I see that hand. Awesome. Is there anyone else today you want to receive Jesus? Thank you. I see that hand. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Church, repeat this prayer after me. Say, dear Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Today, I give my life to Jesus, holding nothing back. I turn from sin. I follow you. Thanks to you, I'm free. In Jesus, name. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Can you clap your hands for those people who made that decision today? I'm going to hand back to Jaden for just one second, but I just want to say one thing. I get you to pray that prayer together for a very specific reason. Christianity is a journey that is done in community. Beautiful. And for those people who made that first step today, I want to say to you that that was a moment that is begun in community will continue in community, will come to the end in community. We do this thing together, church. God bless you. It was wonderful being with you this morning. Thank you for listening to this Elam Christian Centre podcast. Please subscribe to keep hearing more life-changing messages. For more information about our church, please visit www.elamchristiancentre.org.nz.